mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamond. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you, Robert? Today, Russell, it's very apt, actually, because you did a mm. musical little yep. flourish there. Today, Russell, I am feeling torn. And I'm not referring to Natalie Imbruglia's hit single from the 90s. I'm feeling torn because it's kind of like torn between two very essential emotional states or ways of being. One is visceral, kind of like intuition and like deep, deep digging in within your emotional self and just like trusting that somehow. Mm. And the other is the, the kind of fight that you have against uh, logic um, or with logic um, and kind of like science and fact-based knowledge and kind of intellect. And I think those two worlds, which are obviously common kind of battles that we all have as human beings but I feel like today's guest so effortlessly kind of combines those two states mm. there's a tension in her work which is actually extraordinary and the longer I've got to know her work over the past few years because she had an extraordinary um exhibition at the Chisenhale I think it was Amazing. when Polly Staple was still there and is that right yeah when, yes. it was when Polly Staple was still there mm -hmm. and I just remember seeing that show and I'd never really seen much of her work before I think I saw a a tiny exhibition somewhere else but it, it was so extraordinary to it was see incredibly immersive wasn't it, it the whole it, space like all the, all the walls were covered in uh newspaper and yeah. there was works up and there was vitrines and it was a really immersive experience and i remember leaving that exhibition and just thinking a lot about knowledge and i think you know this kind of quest for knowledge and learning is something that's so key to being an artist and to being a fan of art and i think the guest today is wonderful at kind of teaching all of us about mm. the human psychology and um, the, the different emotional states. So I'm very proud. I'm a massive, massive fan of her work. And um, we've been wanting to do this episode for a while, so I'm mm -hmm. thrilled we finally managed to do it. Yeah. I'm really proud to welcome to Talk Art, Mandy, Mandy Elsa. <laughs> Thanks, Hi, guys. Thank you. That was so sweet. That was such a nice intro. Thanks, Robert. Oh, Hi, Russell. This is Hi. such an honour for me. Um, so, yeah, I'm proper excited. You're in your studio, we can see behind you at the moment. Yes. Whereabouts in the world is that, Mandy? It's in North Acton, Park Royal, like where I grew up, more or less. Oh, really? Local, yeah. Did this space, did you know this space existed when you were growing up there? No, it hasn't. It's just like a converted warehouse, so they've chopped it up into little units. You might hear some, like, musicians, like, recording. To say, Park Royal is where I spent the whole of my band years. We used to rehearse in Park Royal before our tour. Yeah, that's what's happening like around here right now. So probably like yeah. same spot. Wow, that's <laughs> so crazy. I'd forgotten about that. That's very cool. What are you working on at the moment? Because you seem to have, your studio seems to be very full of like lots of layers behind you. Yeah, I mean, it's always, it's always full. But at the moment, what am I working on? A show for South Korea coming up in the next few months. Oh wow. yeah, and that's at Lehman Morpin, isn't it? Yes. So that's a big solo show you're doing there. Yeah. 
Ooh, is that your first time showing in, in South Korea? Yeah, it will be. Cool. Well, the work looks well. The work looks incredible behind you, and you. So you're just saying that you don't really ever have an empty studio. How do you balance that? Do you have lots of plates spinning? Like you're saying, you're working towards this show now. I would assume that the work would then leave the studio, and it would be you'd be starting from scratch. But do you like to have a crossover then between like shows and work? Yeah, always. Like I can't stand empty space. Um, I'm a mm. self-confessed order. Yes. Um, and whenever there's an empty space on a wall, like I panic, so I have to fit up with something. Um, yeah, I have to be immersed by all my stuff. And I think I try to recreate that in a tidier way in shows. Oh, yes. right, yeah. So that must make you incredibly prolific then. You're always driven to kind of fill blank space with your work. Yeah. I mean, I don't feel like I am, but other people tell me I am. Like it's always never enough. <laughs> For yourself. <laughs> For myself, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the hoarding then. So being a self-confessed hoarder, I, that triggers something in me because I'm a collector and I like to be surrounded by stuff. Some um, people yeah. just don't like to be surrounded by stuff, but you yeah. have a lot of stuff that you have and you have a lot of books around you. And th th didn't your mum say when you were younger that your bedroom was just disgusting? Yeah. <laughs> 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 yep. Yeah, she still does because I'm in between like um, my folks and, and this place. They're around oh, the really? corner. Yeah. So where does that come from, this, this hoarding mentality of having to keep hold of things? Because and, and, I guess it's like a compulsive um, attachment to objects, which I know and Rob has, where you, you imbue them with some emotional depth so you can't release them. But how, where do you think that comes from for you? I think it's just this thing of like moving a lot when you're younger and you just try and like keep some kind of semblance of um, stability with things. I remember when I was a kid, I'd travel to Malaysia with my whole stamp book collection in the luggage, which is so stupid because the humidity just does, yeah, terrible things to, to the stamps. Really? What kind, of, <laughs> what kind of stamps were you collecting? Just stuff from all over the world. Um, wow. Yeah, proper geek. Oh, no, we're, we're geeks. We love <laughs> that. So what was, the, what was the, I mean, how did the stamps enter your kind of psyche to collect stamps then? It's obviously like you needed to collect something. Um. Is my dad, he's doing lots of correspondences with people around the world because he had this ha amateur radio practice. So he'd always have these like letters coming in. And I just thought the stamps were so magical. They had so many layers to them. It's like money, you know, to like stop the kind of um, counterfeiting that have all those layers. And I always remember like staring at them, looking at them under microscopes and stuff to see all the layers. Um, really? Under yeah. microscopes? Yeah. That was like so my favorite first toy. I remember. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So as, as a hoarder, have you still got them stamps now? Yeah, for sure. You do? Yeah. you still got the... But oh, they're, they're, cool. they're kept safe at, at my parents because they have to be kept... Everything needs to be kept in the right spot. So all diaries and stuff like that have to be kept the right person or space. They're all, like, allocated their special So spot. if you wasn't an, an artist, you would just have boxes and boxes of stuff, but your your the biography of your life through the stuff that you've hoarded and collected does end up getting used in your art so at some point these stamps might get in and everything else around you so that must be a release of the yeah, hoarding in some totally. way i always think that the practice is like i'm so fortunate to formalize my pathology like without it i won't have that stream of of release um so I, i'm really lucky that i can put it into like play um because it has caused a lot of problems for sure 
But saying that is so then when so this is your personal stuff that's going into the art, and then yeah. it, it's going out in the world and being acquired by collectors and museums and institutions. That must be quite painful then, or is it the process of putting that into the art that releases you from these objects finally? I'd say the latter. It's like a kind of release. It's like a kind of, like, yeah, it's a kind of therapy. I remember someone saying like, oh, like, you don't, you don't have any references because my, my identity and memory is quite fragmented. So our family like migrated from like um, Sharjah when I was five, just like without any extended family. So that family system. Where is that? Where is that? Sorry, Mandy. In Sharjah, um, it's really close to the Bay, so it's in the GCC. Um, right. Okay. And so, I, I guess it's my way of like having a history for myself, mm. being so disconnected to, to um, my own. Yeah. It's really interesting because I was thinking a lot about the work you make, and for me, there's this kind of like dark side to it very much about like death and the body and kind of like the the failing of the body and the kind of destruction of it almost and but but running through it there is this sense of continuity and there's just like it's not something you can actually logically explain but for me I have a feeling whenever I look at your work even if I see like we were recently at Tadeus Ropak and we interviewed Julia and and Dame Julia and uh, she had one of your works in in her office that day and even just seeing that single work it feels like there's this continuous thread running through the work and it's a kind of like energy force or like a bloodstream or or something quite mm. you know visceral like the word I used earlier and it's fascinating to hear you talk about this idea of like it's always been with you it's, it's like a kind of continuous thread through your life and your work's been drawn out of that yeah I mean that's a really nice way of putting it I guess it's again coming from this anxiety that I don't have a history or identity but I do have a body that's anxious and I guess growing up in a family with someone with a chronic illness that colours the whole language of things. Um, mm-hmm. My mum was a midwife, so my, my dad had this um, chronic kidney condition. So in a way, their broken English was always sur- around this idea of like the body and what to do with it. And I guess that syntax just kind of seeped into our family. So it was always like, you know, try not to bring infection home and try because, you know, my dad's all, um, immunocompromised. And my mum coming back from work, she'd talk about her clients and things like that. And being a very anxious child, I'd, I'd have like stuff happening in my body and I'd wonder about it, you know. So I always yeah. think like not having references, we all do have a body that could get ill, you know, or a, yeah. a body that can do things. So that's the one thing. If everything was taken away, we, we do have, you know, this vulnerability. Um, and I'm quite literal, so I, I, I literally like see it as, you know, anatomy essentially that's right well people coming to your work now and hearing this conversation will see the figure in your abstracted works present and especially the flesh and what rob was saying it feels very forensic at times and hearing you know your childhood and having this experience as your mum as a midwife and being aware of an illness with your father that that has you can see your work has so heavily influenced the materiality of the surfaces and everything that you work with? Yeah, I think the blank canvas is just the worst kind of like uninspiring surface. 
So I kind of try and create a wound in the kind of ground that I can work around and, and, and modify and stitch together. That way I feel like I'm, I'm making something, like I'm making this kind of corpse um, and I'm, I'm fixing stuff together to make these fragments, which can be like artifacts, like have a body, like to give it some integrity, to give it life. Like it's almost like, again, it's, it's, it's very therapeutic. Like I'm birthing um, these things that can't exist by themselves because they don't have enough context. Um, I always struggled with that. Like I wasn't enough of a thing to put myself forward. So I'd have to suture together like a coherent body of little things. I like the the fact that you use the word suture as well because that is like a medical term for post injury or or you know recovery, and that is a term that you've sort of given yourself for the stitching together of of the materiality in your practice. Yeah, say so. Yeah, this for well, this this language that you've created, like to describe your work, but also the language of your work, is so important to understanding what it is you're putting out in the world. Yeah, I mean, I don't have that art language um, fully embedded, even though I went to art school. It just yeah. it just never stuck. I can't remember artists' names, even the ones I like, you know. But so it's just this thing that's just a constant, at least that keeps keeps me together. Um, so that's why I guess like therapeutic language is more um, apt when I'm discussing my work or, or medical as well. Medical. Is it more familiar as well to you, I guess, because it's like something that you've kind of grown up around in a way. Yeah, that way I feel like I'm not like lying with um, right. both kind of um, art terms. Yeah, it's interesting because I think your generation, our generation, in a way, with the art education system, especially in like the UK, for example, and America, everyone's had to kind of intellectualize their work before they've even made it or even yeah. begun their career. And I always find it quite strange when you do kind of um, thesis visits or whatever, tutor visits, I've done them a few times, the way that they've hardly made any work, but they can stand up and talk to you all about they've what it is the vocabulary, they're doing. Haven't they? And vocabulary. sometimes it feels so separated. But what I like about what, what you, when you speak about it, like I heard journalists try and describe your work as collage and you were just like, no. Like, <laughs> no way. You know, which I, I, I love that actual, the clarity and the confidence yeah. you have to, you know, it's, it's, it's good, I think, to hold on to that authentic self. Yeah, I was giving a few uh, tutorials at Goldsmiths. It's like BA um, mainly. And I, I'm just jealous how, like, they're at that stage where they don't have to think too much about that language. And I think the younger generation are less Im embedded in that kind of right. um, dense theory, you know. Even though I, I, do, I do read theory, but they're just quite disparate um, and come up and go away as soon as they, yeah. How often are you in the studio then? So what, what brings you to the studio every day? What is your driving force that takes you there and, and sees you through the day? Um... It's quite unhealthy because this immersion that you see spatially I have like with my life. So I, this, this thing I'm sitting on is like a fold out bed. So I, I like sleep here even though I'm not meant to. Um, I call it like a shift. So technically it's like labor kind of sleeping. I'm allowed to sleep in the studio. So I come every day. I basically live here and I start my shift around like nine at night all the way to like six in the morning. Wake up. Yeah. Go to my folks try and run and do something with my body yeah. um uh, and then yeah so this idea of immersion being immersed in the space and and the work to the point that i can't really um see because i do drink <laughs> i like this i always think of this idea of immersion and taking away that inner critic 
You know, so if I'm immersed the material, I can see color better. I can see the texture better. I can make connections in this way that's more like um, sensuous, let's say. Yeah. So you it sounds very romantic, but it's true. No, I, I love that. But you were saying about uh, being an anxious child and anxiety, that feels like a material that you are able to channel that if you didn't have art might be sparking somewhere else, but you're able to channel that into your practice. Yeah, totally. I think this last year I had what I can call a proper full-on nervous breakdown. Oh, and but, So after it, I kind of realized how important the practice was. Before I thought I was lucky. Before I'd see myself as lucky, oh, how lucky I am to, to have this kind of outlet. Um, so many other artists are struggling to have what I have. But I thought like, whoa, like without this, there, there would be like literally this, this shell, this nervous wreck, you know. And so I have a, a newfound kind of, um, yeah, gratitude for like this, mm. this channel, this channel, yeah. And is it significant, the idea that you go in so late? So is the nighttime a kind of stream of consciousness? Does, does it Because the rest of the world's probably quieter and they're all asleep. Yeah. Is there some element of that in oh, freeing totally. you up? Totally. I love that. The night is mine. Like, I feel like it's, it's all mine. Whereas the day, as soon as I could hear, like, the cars and the trucks, like, waking up, it's just like, oh, no, it's over. But now I have these, like, grime artists on top of me like we're doing like battles with our base, so I don't feel like it's mine anymore. The, the night, <laughs> but it's also it's also quite nice because they kind of like this. Like our shifts are quite similar, so it's nice to know that there's other kind of practices like that, nocturnal ones. You can work with other sounds happening around you. Um, yeah, I've learned to. You've had yeah. to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but normally I like to be completely, yeah, completely alone, completely immersed. What I love about your your work, Mandy, is that it is on the surface very abstracted and there's lots of elements in there but it to me feels like the portrait of a figure it feels like a human being that we're seeing that's terribly not terribly incredibly abstracted and that the the choices of the tones of the the material used like for the financial times for example you you source a lot of newspapers but you love that newspaper because of the fleshy color because of the pink pages is, is that right to say that these it's an abstracted kind of figuration that your practice is, is about? Totally. I think, like, I'm very, again, very, very literal, and it's just because of the sheer amount of detail and layering that abstraction happens. So the abstraction happens, like, not from a subtraction, subtraction mm. but from, like, a density of, like, too muchness. So eventually, kind of, you can't see it anymore, but it's always a build-up of, like, flesh. Even the grids, like when I stretch them, I imagine them as like a thickness of flesh, um, the grid. So it's like three pieces of meat to me. Like I, I see the world like that. Um, whenever I enter a space, I can see the thickness of paint laid up on the wall. Like I'm always very aware of texture and, and um, material in that kind of very literal way. Um, and the figure is always a reference point because there is no kind of um, imagined images I'm always referring to something even my color palette I can't I don't have a sense of color in that in the way that some painters do so I'm always referring to like skin diseases or um, bruising which is a nice layering of different layers of blood in the in the tissue um, so I'm always looking at source material as well 
Well, let's talk about the actual layering of, of the works then, like, like the process. You said you started off with the ground and you actually built in like a scar that then you could use as a feature and, and build up from. How, how are your works layered? How do you work it? How is your practice? Um, with the paintings, um, it's, it's different to the objects, but I guess it's the same methodology that I just collect lots of shit and mm-hmm. lay, lay everything out and let the periphery take over. And um, so I'd lay out all these pieces of, of linen, say, and all the bits and pieces and rags would, that would be around would kind of make their way into the ground. And I'd kind of like use my hands to kind of smooth on the, the paint like a lotion. I'm thinking of like Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. When he, he rubs the <laughs> lotion onto the, the, the back. I love that film. Yeah. Oh my God. I just watched it again during the first lockdown. Oh my God, it's brilliant. It's extraordinary and it's still so good now. That's yeah. just a classic film. Yeah. God, that's interesting thinking about that film and your work. Yeah, well, it's so piercing it the skin on, isn't it? It's yeah. like Buffalo Bill is making a whole new skin. These those references must be so important to you like movies that show that sort of them characterizations oh, totally totally like i would say that that's influenced me a lot more than looking at artists so like really yeah cronenberg david lynch like all those early cronenbergs like totally even the palette there's like this kind of like muddiness to them and then the flesh the fly was like totally like um pivotal yeah really when did you first see that um like when i was like seven or something Really? Too, too yeah. young. Yeah, too I young stay up late. It. I'm an insomniac, so I'd stay up late and I remember like all the stuff that would come on, on like Channel 4 back then. Yeah. That's interesting because it's like there's like an ominous threat or something in some of those, <laughs> those, in some <laughs> of those yeah. shows though, isn't there? Yeah. There's like a kind of terror in a way. And yeah. I've heard you describe it before, like that you want your work to kind of encompass and embody everything in the world from like politics to sexuality to to the kind of terror of excess which i i love that phrase like terror in excess it's like it's just it's it's it's, it's a fascinating sort of state of being so god that's that's intense <laughs> <laughs> i know i tried to in the shows try to create some kind of like um balance or kind of zen with the with the feng shui and the spacing that's where it comes in but yeah it's a way to I guess the practice is a way to manage my too muchness, mm-hmm. like filtering um, all this information. Um, when I had this breakdown thing, it's really strange what happened to me because I didn't know it was happening. It happened after a long period of depression. And then, weirdly enough, words started getting, started becoming more loaded with meaning. So anything I'd see that I'd intake through my eyes could end up becoming a really bad chain of thought. So like even looking at the newspaper and seeing um, certain headlines would really affect me. So I had to turn them like on their, on their back. So um, there's this thing where I think like artists have it in general. They have the tangential thinking where things can just go off and not on their own kind spiral. of spiral. Yeah, so I was spiraling with all the mm. things around me. So I tried to stay alone. I tried not to see too much. But still, the things in the, in even my own work started to scare me. So I just stopped making work completely. I thought, okay, I need to just start moving my body or do something. And um, that's when I, how I ended up doing some like performance piece that I can't even like comprehend fully <laughs> yet. I need I need more time <laughs> to process that. This yeah, was at Freeze, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exhibition space. Yeah. yeah. I lo- I love that. I watched I watched that today. I thought it was really powerful. I, the way you move is. <laughs> that was the feeling that I had at that 
with that kind of breakdown. It's quite jagged. And I sharp. couldn't. Yeah, I could trying to shake stuff off. But yeah, it was kind of taking over you. And yeah, you're, you're taking bits of your like clothing off and giving it to someone else to trying to get rid of like the yeah. or something and that it was still with oh you. you're bringing it all back Russell I'm oh, sorry I'm sorry well I, I just think well that isn't that what art is meant to do yeah isn't yeah that, isn't that you're channeling like or your practice your work is channeling something in you yes these performance was exercising some energy some like spiky spirit that you had I think and I think that's really um, so brilliant that you, a, you're able to talk about this, but also you're able to use art to exercise demons. Yeah, and in that way, I, I, I kind of like I'm so again grateful. I see I see how important it is now um, because that energy that was like a stimming that I had, you know, and I had to kind of like formalize it some, you know, in some way. And I remember just looking in the mirror and I couldn't like see my own face, you know. And I was thinking, how can I use that mirror to kind of create? Um, to create a, a a plan of like two people moving in space, mm. and then it just I just mapped it out and used an old kind of like skin, what I call a skin, which is the blue works, as the kind of surface for the performance to happen. Um, there was this other, there was this lady that was outside the studio, caravan lady, and she was my doppelganger <laughs> that I met, um, and she was like my the same height as me. She was an artist same shoe size and it became very intense quite quickly i i let her in that the studio so <laughs> it got and i was you know installing the ropex show at the time so i was going from you know this place where this person you know extremely vulnerable something really terrible had happened to her um in the worst conditions and like in that squat system around tottenham and then going into like mayfair with like heels like tinkering on the um, marble floor and it was such a kind of bizarre kind of reality for me to like go in between these two spaces um, so I had to think about how um, I could express what I was happy what was happening because there was such an absurdity that I couldn't process at the time um, at one point I, I couldn't I couldn't get rid of her so it's this thing of like having um, empathy Ooh. for this person that had gone through something and then it being Knowing a threat. Your boundaries. Yeah, exactly. I'm really yeah. terrible. I am like one of those artists that has like too much, too much information. I have very like, you know, porous boundaries. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. That's like skin again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the skin is very, very um, thin. <laughs> I mean, we've all been there. I've, I've yeah. struggled with boundaries for a long time because yeah. it's like really hard, especially when you're quite an empathic person. Yeah. And you want to like love and support and help yeah. other people, particularly through trauma. Totally. And then sometimes it can just go past that, can't it? And it's totally. too much and it starts to take away from yourself. Yeah. And it feels quite like violent to instate boundaries, even though you need them. And I yes. guess that's what the practice is trying to do. Like if I create a frame, that means I have to stop the work or the table stops the kind of hoarding um, yes. section. So it's like, it's a way to kind of like, um, just forcefully put a boundary in place. <laughs> we talk about the tables because that was something that I think. Did you introduce that during the Chisholm era, like in that show? The vitrines. I, the, yeah. Can you speak a bit about about that side of the work? Um, yeah, I always. I guess it. I've always been collecting or hoarding stuff. So it's, it's, it's just essentially that. And it's a, a way to kind of look at these objects and give them their space instead of them being the space material. So I guess mm -hmm. it's this forensic kind of gaze where you can like um, give space to examine 
in detail what what these things are um and they're often like really personal things with really kind of like um ephemeral things or ubiquitous things um and i like this idea of it being like going from the personal to the to the universal to the local and going through those different scales and them having all like this kind of um, connectivity that i can't necessarily process in, in language but you can through material and texture Right. And actually, that's quite interesting because the idea of language in your work is obviously such a kind of obvious literal one in the sense that there's words everywhere yeah. and, that, and that you can even as a visitor, like visit and start reading loads of newspaper articles. And then I've heard you describe it. Then when you look at the paintings, you read them in a different way. You know, it's like. But what I really liked was this idea that that you you like words for their shape, not necessarily for their meaning. And for someone who's obviously very deeply empathic, even with words, and they can help you spiral off into another place. Can you speak a bit about that? And, and also your father's like calligraphy and, and that whole kind of element of the, the movement of words and the shape of words. Mm. Um, I wish I had my diary from last year because then I could talk about it more. My words went completely off on their own thing. I think there's like a, a few... Like a journal. Diary. Yeah, my, my journal. I think there's a few like posts on Instagram that I'm so embarrassed about that it was during that time. And it's the way that words kind of just go off on their own tangent more than particular words, the way that words just go off on their own thing with just their phonetics. Just the fluidity of like um, of rhyme or um, yeah, homophone. So, and I guess that's this thing of like, it take, being taken away from like context, it being taken away from fact and more into the realm of like plasticity and, and paint. And mm -hmm. I guess that's how I read my dad's writing. And that's how he treats his language too when it's more about like shape and gesture um and form more to do with the hand so it takes it back to this base kind of place um and when i was a carer i worked with uh, autistic nonverbal young people and mm. the kind of drawings they would do would be in time with like music or rhythm so it's more like a rhythmic kind of mark making so 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 almost like meaning dissolves from language mm -hmm. um more than liking particular um, words, although I do like some. Interesting. Didn't your dad? Didn't your dad make do calligraphy for a sultan? Um, for the sheikh of um, of uh, Sharjah. Mm. And he does it every day now. He practices calligraphy every day. And these these things he just does on you said on tabloid newspapers and then throws them away, but you, as as a self confessed hoarder, you would then collect these every day because and then use them in in your work yeah so like i like that he didn't give them meaning so i like that he he treated the pra the practice was more um was more primary so it was more about like him doing it just him getting up to do it rather than the finished product and like the texture of like newspaper was a nice kind of surface for his stylus he'd make he'd make his own kind of um styluses so I think when he found out I was taking them, it did change his relationship to the practice a bit. So he became yeah, more aware. And I was like, aware, yeah. yeah, and I liked all the ones that, you know, were a bit more fucked up or a bit more loose. You know, I don't, yeah. I won't get them anymore because he, he knows that he, he wants to give like a, a more kind of um, proportion. Well, he knows they're going to end up at a gallery ball. When yeah. They were, <laughs> you prefer them when they were unguarded. Yes. But now he is like, yeah, he's yeah. aware that he's being sort of observed. Yeah, exactly. It changes yeah. everything. Yeah. So what's the what's the um the quality of the grid? Because that, that for me that feels the most successful 
uh, thing about your work and the most drawn to and the most unique to you is this really tight modernist sort of grid pattern that goes through the whole like practice of yours it's really and it's really now i know your language is really recognizable to you but the metaphor for the grid feels like it's something really important but also how the grid sits within your work can you talk a bit about that yeah, I mean, I can go off on so many different tangents. Go on, off. Love it. <laughs> on one, in one sense, it's about a memory, a very particular memory. In another sense, it's like this using this motif of modernism as a cover, like mm. almost like you, you use that as a hook to um, exist um, because it's just a, such a robust motif to, to use. Um, on the other hand, it's just like just a very um, dumb action of like just doing lines and, and passing time and also like um, trying to create this automatic kind of um, motion. So um, should I go into this memory or is this going to ruin the abstraction? <laughs> I, always, I always think I should write a text about this, but um, let's see. Let's see if it works. Um, when I was a kid, <laughs> every, like, I, I still feel like I'm a kid that refuses to like grow up I think that's all art all artists yeah. are that in a that's sense all of us as well yeah that's a it's good. Vibe. <laughs> <laughs> definitely a good thing um so I have I have a metaphobia this is key to like my whole how I experience the world so I haven't thrown up since I was like five years old and every emetophobe someone who's like fearful of vomit will always say like with so much pride how many years they haven't thrown up for I haven't thrown up since I was five I'm so scared of it <laughs> um and I think it came from this um, coming into coming to London and like us like living family living in like close quarters and my mum have like ha- mum having these really long shifts on the NHS and coming back really knackered these shifts were crazy and just having that one chance to eat and like she had like an eating disorder so like us all being in the same room we'd be like. Um, my brother and sister would sleep and I would, I'm an insomniac. I find it really hard to sleep. Um, we just hear these noises. And then I thought like, you know, this is my mum suffering essentially. And I remember going to school one day and I hated going swimming. I hated all kinds of sports and make up all kinds of excuses to get out of them. The one time I decided to go, um, I'm really scared. Like I, I, again, it's this, this, this very anxious body of like something happening when you're in this open space. It's kind of like a form of agoraphobia, I'd say. Mm. I finally go and a kid is sick in the like, other end of the pool and the sick is coming towards me in this kind of, like, if you imagine like a formal kind of picture kind of realm, um, it's like fleshy coloured and it's coming towards me like this kind of uh, moving, shapeless uh, entity. And then the, the lifeguard comes with this cadmium pink, um, cadmium red plastic net, like, you know, a mesh net, and tries to, attempts to scoop this up, the stuff, and it's just dropping through the net. And I remember it in colours. I remember it very visually, like the turquoise, you know, like how swimming pools are that turquoise colour, um, the flesh, which is the sick, and the net. So I'm, I'm trying to always put these three things together where they hold, but they're never holding. And they're always like escaping. And I kind of see that as like a very horrible metaphor for um, this body in pieces in a way. But when I'm creating these grids and I get to a point where I'm happy, it, it transcends its horror. 
it goes to a place where it's holding in the, at the right frequency um, mm -hmm. and I'm ready to let it go. Um, I can see it in different things sometimes, like in stains or I can see it in like, um, yeah, natural, natural matter. Is there, is it the net is also, I mean, that's an incredible story, very visceral. I, I mean, I didn't have the same experience, but when I was younger, I remember swimming at the Dolphin Centre in Romford, Essex, and there was a floating poo uh, <laughs> that was floating around, and it was, oh, I, 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 I nearly oh, ate it. And I remember it was, there was a wave machine, and everyone was screaming, oh, and I couldn't get oh, out. And there was, I was screaming, and there was a, float, a floater that was just sort of like a little Malteser just bobbing past my head. That stayed with me, and I must have been about, you know, six or seven. But wow. It's I always can... a good place when we're talking about shit. It's everything. Yes. It literally is everything. Yeah, well, that's very, you know, that's the human body. That's yeah. what you're, yeah. they're, them sort of like sources for you, you don't, you're not scared of. These are things yeah. that you feel like make up what it is to be human. Totally. It's just another memory from my mother. She said that when she was growing up, she grew up in a, in a village where it's was, it was very poor. But she remembered that... Um, this kid would just like be just eating its own shit. And she was like, that was just completely normal. And she said she attributes her really good immunity to the fact that she grew up in a, in a jungle environment where she was touching and putting everything in her mouth. And she, yeah, her immunity obviously grew this defense, these defenses. Um, wow. Wow. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com I love these stories of family in your work. I think it's such a wonderful thing, the kind of strong bond you all have. It's autobiographical. And, and the honesty of it all. Yeah. And I, even, I loved that story about your mum and the rubber tree plantation and then the, this concept, that, that, that kind of memory of a visual memory, but passed on from her to you. Mm. But I also think it's super important that I don't necessarily have to, to tell them. Like, it's just nice. It's a nice connect when, when I do. Um, and you, right, okay. But it's also important that the work doesn't need that. Um, yeah. Well, it feels like you, your work is autobiographical to a level. You layer it at the bottom with this very personal, very visceral, and then you, you level up from there. You go up from there, and then the surfaces become um, more universal. So yeah. like you were saying earlier, it's more, it starts at the personal and that's where you are on the base and you're in there, you're embedded, you're at the bottom and then from there you're taking it out so other people can, you know, project onto it and recognise themselves in mm. it. I mean, it works on multiple levels like in that it's an exercising of like my um, immediate experience, my mother's testimony because she always says that, oh, she's like, you know, she's had such a hard life and <clears throat> I think when she retired she'd been working so hard she didn't like many parents they didn't know what to do themselves with themselves in retirement and she was like she was a child laborer in this jungle rubber tapping and so working at that intensity till you're like in your in your late 50s and then suddenly you stop and all you have is like so now we have a crazy garden it looks like a jungle because she needs to put the, the energy somewhere um mm. so in a way it's like taking on the responsibility of like that burden from both my folks 
and processing it and and putting it into make it okay for me as well um it's inherited isn't it Some, yeah we can't get away from our stuff really can we no it's all like you inherited we all inherit our generations or the generations above trauma in some yeah. ways and it feels like your work you, you you've inherited what your parents have been through even though you haven't personally experienced it but that still lives through you and now that is part of your work yeah and that's a specific kind of experience to Absolutely. have that weight but not have gone through it um, yeah but, but there is an openness to your work though which is completely the opposite of all this stuff we've been yeah. talking about even the titles of your work like if you think of like the title net grid it's quite like open isn't it it doesn't it's it's not autobiographical it hasn't got like a a kind of sentence about a street you grew up on or your mum's name or anything like personal like that and even like the piece paintings or I don't know can you speak a bit about that side of the work and how you title and use words actually to describe the object or yeah um name the object I think access is really important not unlike what you guys are doing so um so that everyone can enter at any level that's super important so it has that space where people can relate because that the body is like a universal thing right so mm. so you can enter from like you know formalist perspective or like just the object perspective material perspective so i guess i'm thinking a net on one hand is some as a thing and a grid can be a number of things and they can come together and you can experience them in multiple multiple ways mm. Well, the, the grid and the net uh, metaphorically and literally have like, is catching information and containing it. Like you were saying, the table stops, you know, the hoarding continuing and the net contains, keeps it all together, keeps it safe, keeps, keeps this what could be sprawling information, sprawling, like coming in and out, it keeps it contained. Mm. And then the grid, by contrast, is like a, can be a virtual schema you know, in, like, um, coding space in, in, on the computer or, like, this, this non-material kind of way to arrange um, space, essentially. Mm. And you, want, you only work in one size and then you have studies because the one we saw at uh, Tadeusz Ropak was a smaller work. I think it was, like, a, a metre by a metre, I want to say. I might be wrong about that. But you normally work in sizes of 225 by two, three, five centimetres. Yeah. And then these other works are seen as studies for the bigger works. Why, why, why have you set that rule for yourself when it comes to these pieces? I'm quite rigid in like the rules I give myself. Otherwise, again, you just have this spiralling. <laughs> so the <laughs> studies have this kind of rule where it's like no more than three nights like to finish. The, the net grids, the big ones, they can, they can take any amount of time to like get layered to the right you know, moment. So the, the thing with the studies is sometimes, like, I'm not happy with them, but I have to let them go. Like it's, so they have this kind of different dynamic. They have a speed to them. Like, sometimes the paint's not dry. They're kind of, like, wet on wet often. Um, and because I limit myself with time, I could, see, I could see the kind of different dynamics with my hand, and the material does something else. So it's, it's a way to kind of examine the differences of time, I guess. Mm. You know, I was thinking back to earlier on when you mentioned about the microscope. And 
Um, when I was thinking about the introduction today, I was thinking about you almost of being this kind of interrogator, like a detective with a torch, mm. somehow like above all of that intense visceral emotion and actually quite analytical and quite scientific. So it forensic, fascinates me that... Forensic science, yeah, yeah. But like this idea that you're sort of like shining a torch within within the soul or something, because that's something that I love, obviously, is like so... so yeah. It leads me to... <laughs> I love it. I love, I love it. I love it. Let's but, talk about the soul in Eckhart Tolle. Because I was, I was listening to him, the pain body, how like you're meant to be the observer that is looking at the, the, the pain body or your, your suffering self. And that distance is essentially meditation and it gives you distance from like the immediacy, I mean, of the past kind of pains and you're focused on this kind of um, transcendental distance. Um, but I'm more, like, I'm more like a kiddie scientist more than anything. It's not like really like forensic pop, examination. Pop scientist. Yes, yeah. exactly. So it's just, again, I think, all practice are a way, a way to create distance with, um, or many, with yourself and um, the trauma through like aesthetics um, or, or uh, action. So yeah, there is this creating of distance, but I guess the connections only happen like way later when I, when I look back on the work or yeah, revisit it. But as I'm kind of assembling, it's quite an intuitive process of just like putting like, color and form together and and words and sentences they have their own kind of bizarre logic mm. so maybe the exhibition making is where it becomes more scientific in a way yeah because that's when you get the distance and yes. you were talking about the way you construct the space yeah and that's why it's super important like who i'm working with because often like very much informed by um you know the curators or the conversations i'm having around that time Interesting. Yeah. Well, I, I've read a quote where you said, you're always trying to stop yourself. That's where a curator comes in. Yeah. Yeah. Because I guess it's this thing where I don't have an idea. I never have any ideas. It's just a filling up a space. That's what I do. So if I was let to my own devices, if you notice, there is a thread to all the kind of installations where there, there is like yes. a tendency towards like filling filling yeah so i always yes every yeah. surface i don't like empty space so i always like liken the process to uh, how gases would move in a room eventually they would just fill out the space in an even way there's no kind of like specific corner they would choose the particles of gas hmm. It makes me think of the room that you had in the show recently at Today's Road Pack, and it was a, a group show that you shared with Rachel Jones and Alvaro Barrington, and you have a room, and it was a whole room you walk in, and you feel slightly... Oh, you have to put shoes on. I remember them. You have to put little slippers on because you're walking across the surface, and it's underfoot. But there is... Now, you saying that, there wasn't a door in that room, and part of me feels like I want to give you a door suddenly because <laughs> I want it. <laughs> I want it because then gases are going to get out of yeah, the door because yeah, yeah. you can see it and it draws you in. But you want, you kind of want that feeling of containment, like as if yeah. I think it's that again. It's like very um, it could be like very childlike in that I want to um, be contained, but at the same time, I remember I was going through that thing at the time, and air was like I could I could feel things more more physically. So I felt suffocated when I was in there when the latex was. Not when it was was raw, but when it was when it had dried, I thought it was suffocating. And me and Julia were talking about like the feng shui in the room and how we had to leave the window open. So I was like obsessed with keeping this window open. Whenever I came into the, the room and the window wasn't open, I'd freak out <laughs> because there had to be like a stream of energy coming in and out mm. because it was so full. Um, 
So um, I guess I'm like always like mediating this this fullness or too muchness and moderating um, what's good. Well, it's an <laughs> instinctive energy then that runs through your practice, and it's, installation feels like it's incredibly important to you. So what is it like working? With a gallery, what are the pressures of that, or and what are the bonuses and the pros and cons of that? Mm. I mean, the person that's my liaise is super important because I'm super like emo, so those kind of very personal relationships. And like I always said, like ideally, I would have like a shoot in the studio and I just throw the work through the shoot <laughs> and and not have to I- interact with with anyone. You know, I'm like one of those you know hermit people. Like an American trash shoot kind of thing. Yeah. Like yeah, exactly. the building. Yes, yeah. I'd love that. And have an art shipper at the end. Yes. Just take it all away. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Um, so in a way it, it works because my constant making, there's always somewhere for it to go. And I'm, I'm always like, um, I'm not fast, but it's constant. There's a constant stream of stuff. So it's good to, to have like somewhere for it to go. Um, the pressures, the pressures are like, when the work is named and I guess I'm always thinking about spaces I'm always thinking about conversations I'm always thinking about how these little members of the family can sit in a space and to ask for a part is like a bit painful like we want two negrids or whatever um Mm. but that's the same for any artist I'm sure um yeah like the kind of the battle and the compromise between the commerce and the yeah Yeah. and I have to find ways to make it still magical for me to make work um, and, and not be thinking about that. But it sounds great that you're doing this this duo show with Lee Bull. Can you speak mm. a bit about that show? And is that in New York at Lehman Maupin? Yeah. Um, that sounds great. I, I love Lee Bull's work. Me too. I mean, I'm super excited to have this show with her. And why it was cool is that she was working, she's working on this really major show in South Korea. Mm-hmm. One of the major museums. I'm terrible. Um, and it's looking at her old, her older work where she's um, her more performance-based work with the female body and and, um, and you know her, her archetypal early stuff. So she didn't have time to kind of um, really engage with the making of the show. And I love the idea that this show could come together just like this kind of corpse of body parts, and they just come together because of the connections they already have inherently. So um, I know that she had a couple of works and I had to respond to them um, with the space we had. And I was like, had my fingers crossed with the hang. And it just, it just worked. The palettes worked, the forms and the kind of conversations about this, these, these biomorphic shapes resonated with the kind of latex. It, just, it was just very natural how it just kind of came together. Amazing. And is it is it important for you, kind of like intergenerational conversations? Because Liebel isn't like ancient, but she's like late 50s. I think she was born in like 64. So is is that a nice thing for you to like have this show with a, you know, an artist from the next generation up? Uh, yeah, like it's reassuring that stuff can talk to each other in a way that it isn't forced. And it's just always there. There's this constant um, connecting over time um, yes. without like a forced um, contextualizing um, yeah of course it's, it's super important for me to be having those dialogues 
I was thinking a lot about the Max Mara Prize that you were part of um, a number of years ago. And if you think of like Helen Kamek, a previous talk art guest, and I adore her work and I think she's an amazing Love human her. being as well. Yeah, and I saw that you're both going to be in the British Art Show next year, yeah. um, which is super exciting. The British Art Show 9, I think, isn't it? It's the ninth edition of it. But how, how does that feel to be, you know, invited to be part of such a significant a touring exhibition? Amazing. As, you know, as a British artist. Yeah, it's strange. <laughs> it's like a, you know, it's quite a big deal, isn't it, here? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm super, super honoured to be having um, dialogues with all these people I admire. And, um, but you know what? To be honest, I don't really think about these things until, like, the deadline hits. <laughs> I, really I, I just feel, like, I feel really, really um, fortunate that the work is resonating. But... Yes. Um, it's vibrating. Yeah, yeah. And, like, I think uh, one, one of the kind of um, press releases had this thing or, like, tendencies in contemporary art practices. And it's nice to know that there's, like, these new tendencies and that's being picked up. Um, mm. Yes, definitely. What was it like to have your first solo at the Chisenhower, which is one of our most important and respected and wonderful institutions that we have in 2019 in your show, Cite Your Sources, which again is, a, is something I'd like to talk about the title of that show because that was a quote from one of your tutors. But what, what that was to go from recently graduating to then having a solo at the Chisenhower, what, what did that feel like? And was there any sort of like um, <laughs> anger from your fellow, fellow <laughs> students, fellow, your peers that were like, what <laughs> the fuck? <laughs> you like to get in there. <laughs> um, actually, I wasn't newly graduated. It had been quite a while. I'd given up. So it's extra. It's extra special for me because I'd, oh. I'd not expected any of it. Um, so when I graduated, I thought there's no way I can do this in a sustainable way. Um, that's when I started doing social work and care work. So like my practice is like um, only been seen quite recently. If you look at all the shows, it's like, 2017 2019 onward really mm. um so i'm not really a young artist that just came out even though it seems that way um so to start out on that footing was incredible to work with polly and ellie and the team and just have them like really understand the work quite intimately and rigorously um it was yeah it set it really set the bar and yeah, it feels it felt feels really good in terms of like, um, what other my peers think. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I really, I really don't know. I didn't, I didn't um, really socialize. I don't have like an extended um, artistic uh, community actually. Artist community. There's a, mm -hmm. there's a few people I, I'm really close to, but yeah, it's all in this little bedroom space that exists. I love the idea of it being a bedroom because the cushioning. I feel like I feel like your whole creative world is like this kind of thing to protect you, but also some sense of healing. Because I know you've mentioned a lot um, in the past, even just as like a metaphor, but like bruising and bruises, um, like within colour. I loved Ooh. the description of all of that. And then it got me thinking about bruises and then the cushioning and the kind of healing and the recovery. And I don't know, it's like, it's super intense, all that stuff. I, I, I just really connect to it. Mm. Yeah, I like I like that way of thinking, and in that sense, like um, I don't know I don't know what it would mean to like I really admire artists that work in a in a socially engaged way, and for me, it's 
I, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> I don't know how to do that. It's more personal. So like my social engagement is like one-on-one. Um, probably like mentoring or like um, a relationship with like a musician working on another piece or, you know, it's, it's super, everything's super emo. Um, yeah. <laughs> but you know what though the work and the exhibitions is your way of collaborating and is your mm. way of connecting to a much much wider audience and an international audience so in a way that is I think sometimes having that kind of rigid focus on you know yourself in a sense and making yourself the best yeah. version of you, you that's what be. the guilt the guilt comes from there yeah. right yeah but it's like a generous thing though in the end the actual act of that self-focus can end up being this incredible generous act so We've definitely um, yeah. grateful for it. Yeah. But just go back, just go back to the Chisholm show. So you had the title "Cite Your Sources," oh, yeah. and that was a that was a quote from something your tutor said to you. What what? Why did you choose that title, and why did that stay with you? I just gave a talk at Kingston, and um, Dan, the guy that um, Kidna that organised it, saying it's like it's an injunction that every tutor gives their student in contextual studies. So it's an injunction for every writer. So it's, it's like an overarching um, law. So I like to think about this in terms of like, it's like asking you to make a proof of yourself, like make yourself legitimate. So, and that's such a pressure. And that if your sources are like precarious, if your history, your references, your past, your identity is, is, is you know, fragmented, how do you even begin? You know, like if you don't have your, your spiel ready, if you don't know what it is, if you don't, you know, um, how does one go about putting together a coherent body and make themselves legitimate in, in, in now? So that is like my kind of reaction to um, this thing to, to appear, to make myself uh, um, legitimate. Mm. I, I think there's something really special about artists that can make without the idea there at the beginning in a way. So if you can find the ideas through the making, so you can just trust yourself enough just to make the work, get involved in it, and then afterwards all the thinking and the ideas will come out. Of yeah, all together. All yeah. yeah, like the Sleep Bull show, which is nice. And I always think that, um, would, would cite your sources, is that uh, um, it will just you know, fall, fall into place. Um, because you can never really do it. It's an impossibility. You can never really pin it to one thing. You can never really say, whatever you're saying, you're, it's, it's going to escape that explanation, mm. um, what you're doing. It's funny, when I first saw your work, I was thinking loads about Agnes Martin. And, yeah. and, and, and that, that was actually the first thing I ever thought. And it's funny that when you do see work, it's all subjective to your own art history knowledge or your yeah. things that you love because I love Agnes Martin yeah. therefore I loved I was very quick to love your work but the more I looked at it I was like it's actually quite different because you I always think your your grids like the red painted I think Rosemary Trockel the way Rosemary Trockel is a good one too yeah oh my god I love Rosemary Trockel I love Rosemary Trockel yes. um but you know I, I always think of it almost like handwriting so like when you're doing these these freehand kind of grids because mm. even though they are a grid they're actually all wavy and they're kind yeah, of like writing without words though yeah. like calligraphy in some ways yeah it's like, yeah oh i never thought of it like that. that's nice um yeah but i always i always am quite um careful to say those big names that i do like because the moment i do it's like oh it's like that that's what you're doing you know and it's like it's a million things it's 
more Cronenberg for me. But if you do say Agnes Martin, Ava Hess, it's like, oh, of course. But, you know, Ava Hess... You'll take those, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I know what you mean. It's almost like it shuts you down. It limits you. Yeah, yeah, When actually you're so much more than just one thing, you know. Well, it's yeah, like, the Cronenberg thing's very cool. I love, I love that filmic element to it. Yeah. I guess like we're, pull, we're pulling from so many different sources. I like um, uh, what Alvaro Barrington says about like stealing, like artists stealing. I steal from um, them. I don't think I steal, per se. I just think that they're just, it's, just, it's just around. And if you work with latex people and you're a woman, hmm. Ava Hess is a bit lazy. <laughs> to Paul, say to Paul make Tech, I think of a lot. I see Paul Tech a lot. Actually, he's one of my favourites. That I would yeah. say. I actually would say, like, yeah, I really, really um, love, love, loved his work. I love that he just did it for did like bodies of work, and he moved on because he just wanted to. Um, he was. Do- it felt like he's the you know a, t- a true artist, artist doing stuff for himself. Yeah. Um, one of his best works, I think, is um, this questionnaire he gave to like students. And it's um, basically um, inquiring about the nature of desire. Like, what do you do before a date? and Things like that. And I just thought this kind of layout of this questionnaire was just so beautiful. I don't know if it's a work, though. I think it's just part of his teachings. But that makes me think of a work that I've actually come to because of you, which was by Richard Serra, which is Verbalist, which you cite as one that was quite influential to your practice from uh, 63 to 68. And it's all different descriptions for what you can do to paper and it feels yeah. very visceral and I love that and I don't, I don't know if you have that to hand but would you consider reading a section of that out because it's so good <laughs> oh I need to open up my google <laughs> I don't... it's so so good I, should I do this let's see well only if you feel comfortable don't let's you? do yeah. it Sarah uh, Russ just loves making people read <laughs> Like, I just love. I, I, the fact I came to, it, I went. I love this, and the thought, the thought of you discovering this and and considering it so much because it feels very human. Okay. I'm gonna do like two columns max because okay, there's great. four. <laughs> yeah. um, to roll, to bend, to crumple, to split, to remove, to open, to spill, to lift, to flood, to support, to hang, to bundle to arrange, to distribute, to surround, to wrap, to weave, to bond, to dilute, to stretch, and to systematize. That's just the first um, thing. But what I found fascinating is like I saw that in a show and I was thinking how, how beautiful, how elegant. But I imagine there's all the things you could do to a body. Yes, exactly. Um, and again, when I, I remember this thing, that my a tutor again had said in painting school, he said, what is a good hang? And he meant, like, what would you consider? Like, what other artists would you like to hang a show with? Like, have your work... And I was thinking, like, what does he mean? Like, hanging out or, like, a hanging, like a lynching? Like, I was thinking some people can't afford that, that space of, like, poetry. So it's like poetry is almost like this um, privileged space. So thinking if you don't have access to language, then it goes into the body. And again, what had happened... In this breakdown, as everything became literal and everything became a reference to the body, like too close, this proximity. So I kind of like this idea of like taking something so beautiful, so abstract and so refined and, and just putting it back into the flesh. And again, it's this thing of like, uh, like code switching, like people know who Richard Serra is and using those things as hooks and 
you know, it'd be great if we, if I could get to a point where like I'm not using those things and kind of the language of the work is, is exists in its own right. But we're always referring to history. It's always a dialectic with history and what we're exposed to. So, yeah, that kind of relationship. And also, I think it's authentic anyway because it's your you were touched by that work. Therefore, it informs what you want to you know make as well. So it's. I think it's all just an ongoing, it's what we were talking about before, that continuation, that thread, like the blood, you know, con- continuation. And that's the same with art history. And even if you look at like printmaking in your work, you know, we haven't really spoken about that, but like, Screen you know, printing. silk screening and, mm. and the way you print directly onto the canvas, like that's a whole other language. And if you think of like pop art and the way you've used like imagery from like porn magazines or, you know, or, or soft porn or what have you, you know, like th- 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 there's all these different languages and different visual connections that I think are just from your, you know, interest in the world. So that's, that's totally valid, isn't it? Mm. That's what, I mean, every artist has to, you know, pinch art history. <laughs> you know, maybe not steal, but maybe just have a little pinch of art history. <laughs> All reference. Yeah. Cite, cite it. Cite yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. After you've looked at it. Yeah. Cite, yeah. Cite, but the thing is... I can't remember like these canonic names a lot of the time. So I have, I have this like little um, note um, thing in my phone and I have to write all the people that I like, like artists. Mm. But I remember everything a good friend has said and I always, I always say like, you know, oh, so-and-so. My sister said that, like as my sister said, blah, blah, blah. And I remember, every, and I'll, to an extreme, cite them. Mm. And I hate it when people like would come up with something and I, I know where they got it from and like they they won't cite their friend or something like that right. but I think I think it's okay to not cite the canon <laughs> so, <laughs> so um yeah that's my position on it like so again the emo the emo takes precedence um awesome I love that. Well, we ask every guest that comes on, Mandy, two of the same questions. The first one is, if you could do an art heist, you could have any work of art in the world for yourself, what would it be and why? Oh, shit. I didn't think about this beforehand. <laughs> do you, do you, I know you're a self-confessed hoarder of, of stuff. Yeah, you're a self-confessed hoarder of stuff, but do you collect art? Do you ever trade with art friends or like along the, along the way? Or? Um, no. I think I wrote this down actually. Okay. In my very important art list (laughs) that I forget. (laughs) (laughs) It's quite an apt question. Yeah, because I listened. I listened to a good three hours of your um, talks before. Oh. Um, And I loved, I loved the Kenny Schachter one, man. It was so good. Yeah, Yeah. he took my two good colors. That's going to come up next. Okay. That's funny. One sec. He's such a kind of controversial figure in many ways. He loves and I think the kind of purest, yes. the purest kind of like primary art market often like vilify him and you know, but I think he's a really important voice actually and a really he's fascinating a good mouse, one. isn't he? And he's Paul? he's actually a really I think he's a good person. Like I've I've met, I've hung out with him a few times and mm. he's he's just genuine. He's just who he is. Yeah. And he he's eccentric and he's passionate and he thinks about things, you know, and he's also not afraid of the new either you know he's way more um unafraid than i am like, yeah but i'd be really scared if he comes for me i mean there was a bit <laughs> it was a bit awkward at one point in the talk which i loved <laughs> but i, I loved know, it how I you backed it for the it. art yeah i loved it you backed it for yourself it was good <laughs> yeah. um i got it i just forgot the name of the artist so it's an yeah. outsider artist and it's a really beautiful hypnotizing piece i don't think um many people know it is by august natara 
and I think he suffered schizophrenia. And it's just this very like humble pencil drawing of like two eyes that look like they're missing. And it's so beautiful. I even like reproduced it on one of my paintings once. So it's called My Eyes in the Time of Apparition by August Good. Natura. Where did you see it? Have you seen it in the flesh? Um, no, I you saw it. Flesh, I just no, I saw it in a in a in a book um, that I have. But I remember seeing it as a kid and thinking, like, I'm like really fascinated by outside art because there's something about um, it not being made for an audience or it being made for a personal audience. Again, that interiority that I really kind of like value. Um, God, I have never seen that work before, and it is extraordinary. <laughs> Can, My are you seeing it? Time of apparition. I'm looking at it right oh, now. Oh, amazing! It's 1913. Wow! Yeah. And that's so interesting. Thinking about your work. Yeah, I think it's beautiful. The colors. I share your passion for outsider artists as well, like not making work for a commercial sake or for an audience, but just mm. compulsively making it. And there's something that really reveals more about the human condition. Yeah, there's way. an urgency and a frailty to it. Like it's often done on paper, you, you know, it's yeah. like mm. beautiful stuff. We've interviewed an amazing outsider gallery, uh, gallerist called... Um, Jennifer Gilbert, Gilbert from Jennifer Lauren Gallery. She's actually going to be on the Series 9 of Talka, um, talking about Shinichi Sawada, who's a Japanese outsider artist. He's extraordinary. Yeah. You should listen to her because I think you'd really like her program. Yeah, she's, she's wonderful. Yeah. The other question we ask every guest, which I'm excited to hear your answer, is what is your favourite colour? Yeah, so <laughs> it's exactly the same as Kenny Schachter's one. <laughs> like, there's two. So there's, like, there's this brown that I really like which is like iodine brown um and you can't get it in paint it has this transparency that I really like and obviously this link to surgery so in a lot of my work there's this wash of like diluted poo brown <laughs> so that ages things and I remember like one of the rosters of uh the galleries an artist show hadn't sold because it had this brown in it like pervasively through the show and I just thought like that's such a nice kind of spanner in the works and I like I, it kind of gives kind of gives age to and latex goes that color so if you embed things in latex it has that kind of browniness um and on the flip side of that I like reverse stuff so like you I, I'll do my blue work and the red work so blue obviously that's everyone looks good in blue in a in the right blue shirt everyone looks hotter and it's like this <laughs> it's a kind of like cerulean kind of um it's described really perfectly in the devil wears prada when she tells the in turn off this perfect the, the right cerulean blue it's like slash blue, basically amazing <laughs> that was another thing i was thinking a lot about when i thought about your work was the um the eye you know that kind of like in turkey if you go to like istanbul they have that kind of blue eye like it's oh, not yeah. an all-seeing eye i think it's more it's of like the evil eye yeah. yeah. for some reason yeah. i was thinking a bit about that about this idea of your work somehow protecting people oh my god yeah. i literally did a painting of the evil eye like when I, when I was ill, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it's about protecting. So one of the people I work with, she has these perfect coloured eyes that reminded me of it. <laughs> I was like, okay, that's, that's Tamara's eye and it's going to protect me. <laughs> Love that. I'm very literal. See the work that you wanted to do the art heist? That's two eyes, isn't it? Oh, yes. Natura. I hadn't even thought of that. But that, yes. yeah, that's good. I was going to actually all... wear my evil eyes today, but I, I don't need them from you guys. So I left them there in the back. <laughs> Okay. But they're really beautiful. They're tiny little orbs that so no one can see them. They're not like statement pieces. 
Mandy, you're amazing. Oh, it's, Mandy, you guys are amazing. This, chat. this has been so fun. Yeah. And brilliant. And thank you for being so engaging. open and you're just extraordinary. And I'm yeah. I'm so grateful to have sort of met you properly because I know we've met briefly in the past, but yeah. in those weird social circumstances, one <laughs> really gets to chat and I yeah. can't wear it. Thank you much so much, just guys. Have dinner with you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, just chill. This was proper fun for me, and thank you for making me feel so comfortable. Um, um for everybody listening, um. There are some amazing shows coming up, um, including the UTA Space um, solo exhibition, which Mandy's doing in Los Angeles. When is that? Is that later this year? I think so. I don't know when exactly. Yeah, well, that's coming up anyway. And then you've got the Lee Bull show, which is on right now. And then you've yeah. also got your extraordinarily exciting uh, solo show, your first one in, in South Korea, in Seoul, again with Lehman Morpin. And then later in the year, you're doing stuff with Today's Road Pack again, and you've just got lots on, so good times. Yes. Um, and you can visit uh, our Instagram, at Talker, and see images of all the artworks we've discussed today. And I'll definitely be posting your art heist, because I think that's going to be a real discovery for people. And what's your Instagram? Are you just at Mandy? Elsa. Yeah, it's just my name. Yeah. Perfect. Um, Thank you so Thank much, you so wonderful much. people. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We'll I can't wait to listen to your Paul McCarthy. Well, I yeah. think you're going to get a lot oh from that. Oh, my God, yeah. He, his, his, one of his favourite colours is brown. Mm. And he actually well, we had a joke at the end of the episode, which was like, we asked him, what is art? Because he was like, these questions are terrible. Like, it's like saying, what is art? So, Mandy, what is art? It's art, Mandy. This is not part of the questions, is it? I'm not obliged to answer. You don't have to answer. If you can, if you've got, an, if you've got a response, oh, what shit. is art? Um, I think it's just much easier to talk about that floating thing that was in the wave pool that you talked about. Yeah, the floating pool. Yeah. Yeah. The little Maltese That's that easy, that I knew yeah. yet. Yes. That's philosophy in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. Cheers. On that note, we'll, we'll be, be back. back very soon. Okay. Bye. Stick Bye. around. Mate. Okay, I will. Bye. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Toby. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com